Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Okay, sorry. Good morning. Um, today's reading is today's Bible reading is from Mark chapter one, verses one to eight. And when I'm done with the reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord to which you respond. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome, everyone. Um, I've got my manners back now. Good morning. Good to see you all, specifically to those who haven't been here in a couple of weeks. You know, it's um, January. Everybody's slow. Things are slow. We're slow to get back to work, slow to get back to the normal rhythm of things. And I'm seeing a number of faces here that we haven't had Um, the past couple of weeks. So you're welcome this morning. I hope you're as happy to see me as I am happy to see you. Um, We're we're starting a new series this morning. Well, the cheers. Anybody? I don't know if that's a chair of like, or like, ah, really. We're starting a new sermon series this morning through the book of Mark. Through the book of Mark. And as I was thinking about the the new series or the the series in Mark, um, it got me thinking about, of all things, thrillers, action movies, um, where there's the boss and the actor. And some of you may remember particularly, there was this um, genre, this particularly in somewhere from the the 60s, depending on who you ask, the, the, the dates change, but somewhere from the 60s all the way to the 80s, there was a certain type of action um, movies or, or thrillers. Nowadays, you know, most of the time what you have is, if you don't have like the Marvel stuff or the DC stuff, what you have is um, a group of people who are usually working together. So think of Expendables, if you know what I'm talking about, um, or any other type. But between the the 60s and the 80s, and maybe a little bit of the 90s, but the high period was 60s to 80s, there was a certain type of action movie or thrillers where there was just one person. If you remember, there was just one person who was doing all the action. 
Like it was one person who had all the enemies. So think about Bruce Lee, think about um, Clint Eastwood, um, Jackie Chan a little bit. Yeah, all of that. All of us showing our ages now. But the one I think that sort of epitomizes that, that sort of period is... Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. But it's still I think it's Rambo. I think it's Rambo, Sylvester Stallone. So some of you remember this. The funny thing, though, about um, Rambo is that I actually have never watched a Rambo movie from beginning to the end. I haven't. All the Rambo movies I've seen is either I, I just stumbled into it halfway in or maybe, you know, like I saw in an uncle's house or something. I remember particularly there was one scene I saw where the guy was stuck in a swamp. I think this is Rambo 3. He was stuck in a swamp and he was surrounded by enemies all around. And somehow, this guy did not die. They were shooting him, he didn't die. They were shooting him, he didn't die. He just came out of the swamp. And everybody died. But usually, the way this sort of movie starts is people actually underrate this guy. They don't know who he is. I was watching the, the trailer for the first Rambo, which is this one. Um, and it starts, you know, pretty simply, um, First Blood, I think, 1982, 1980, whatever it was. And he walks into this town where um, they don't know who he was. The cop, the, the sheriffs in the town kidnaps him, basically. And then he starts showing them Pepe. And then there's a particular scene where they have to ask for backup because they were trying to implicate him for something. And the person they are asking for backup tells them that there's nothing I can do. And the, the sheriff asks... The, the person who is asking for backup says, are you saying that 200 of your men cannot capture this guy? And he says to the sheriff, he says, anytime you send this guy on a mission, just make sure you don't forget the body bags because he's going to kill everybody. And in some way, the picture of Jesus that we get from the book of Mark is like Rambo. He doesn't kill everybody. Just, just say but it is Jesus from start to finish. It's a high-octane thriller where Jesus is doing all the action. There's a word that repeatedly comes through in the book of Mark. Every time you read the book of Mark, you see this word that comes up again and again and again. Immediately. Immediately Jesus did this. Immediately Jesus went there. Immediately Jesus did this. In fact, the book of Mark is constructed in such a way that the teachings of Jesus aren't as many as the actions of Jesus. And what Mark is trying to help us see is that there's a way we can be familiar with the person of Jesus and not actually know who Jesus is. That like we watch a thriller and we see this character who is introduced at the very beginning where everybody's underestimating the person. We, we can be so familiar with Jesus that we can underestimate him and actually never know him for who he truly is. And even if you've never watched Rambo or any action thriller, maybe your stuff is Korean. <laughs> I have to sip a cup of tea for that. Maybe your stuff is Korean. I don't even know, man. I don't know. All of you that watch Korean, God loves you. And I do too. Even if you've never watched an action flick, 
We know that because there are people in our lives that we thought we knew and we don't actually know them well. Maybe the person is sitting right beside you. Don't look. If you are married, don't look to your left or your right. But you didn't know that this person snores. And you're like, fine guy or fine babe. And you're like, oh, wow. And then you, on the, on the night when you sleep in the person's room, this person actually snores. Or maybe there's somebody you have been familiar with. You've, you've constructed a big picture of them. This usually happens with celebrities, right? You think this person is a certain way. And then you see the person and it's like, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't know this about this person. I didn't know they linked. I didn't know they were short. I didn't know they were this tall. Those kinds of things. We can be familiar with Jesus and not actually know who Jesus is. And so we've titled this series, Introducing the Son of God, because we believe that what God wants us to see through this first section of Mark that we'll be looking at, Mark chapter 1 to 4, is Jesus, the Son of God. And I pray that for as many of us that need our minds and our hearts reoriented to this reality, that God will make it happen in Jesus' name. And so you see Mark's thesis very quickly in Mark chapter 1 verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And very quickly, let me just unpack five things that Mark talks about in that first verse. The beginning, the gospel or good news, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Five things very quickly. When comes church, you come for theology lessons. And so Mark uses the word beginning. And if you have read the Bible before, you know that you've seen this in a certain place before, right? Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning. In fact, the very words Mark uses here is the same word that is used in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. And sort of what Mark is saying is that when Jesus shows up on the stage, it's really the beginning of a new creation. That God is, is as though God is pressing the reset button on all that has been happening in the world. And so Mark wants us to see that this Jesus is starting a new world order. Something different is happening. What he says is the beginning of what? Of the gospel or the good news. The word there is the word euangelion. Let's say that together. Euangelion. Now you can tell everybody you know some Greek words. Euangelion. And what that word means is good news, but not just good news. It means good news of great joy. It's the kind of thing where you, you, maybe you've been going through cancer treatment and the doctor comes to you and says, the good news is you are cancer free. It is a kind of news that is not just good news, but good news that evokes great joy and it has life-altering implications. And so when Mark is talking about the gospel of Jesus, he's saying that this news is not just good news. It has massive, massive implications for the world in which you find yourself in, even though everything might not be going as, as you have planned and ordered it. Which is not just any good news. It's not the good news of your favorite political figure winning his elections. It's the good news of Jesus. And that name Jesus is so wrapped up in his mission. Jesus means the Lord is salvation or Yahweh saves. And what Mark wants us to see that the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus is tied very deeply to what his name means. And so Jesus is not just coming to add something nice to your life. Jesus is not just coming to make you think better or do better. Jesus is coming to rescue you. Why? Because you need saving. The good news, the beginning, the gospel. Of Jesus. 
when she says Jesus, the Messiah. And in fact, this is such a very key theme throughout the book of Mark. You see this, Jesus is often described as the Messiah or the Christ. And what, what that means is that in, 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 at that period, there were certain people who were thought of as the Messiah. The Messiah was somebody who was assumed to be in the Davidic line, who was a king, who was a deliverer, somebody who was meant to rescue God's people because at that point in time, they had been under Roman um, bondage and slavery. So Jesus is the one who saves, but the one who rescues. He delivers us out of the bondage that we're in. And lastly, he says, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark uses the Son of God. That phrase, the Son of God, appears three times in the book of Mark. And every time it appears, it is connected to the divinity of Jesus. That Mark is wanting us to see that Jesus is not just... In the mode of a politician, in the mode of somebody who rescues us, he is the very son of God. He is God himself. So again, I'm praying that as we sort of go through this series, that all of these things crystallize for us, that you are part of a new creation, the genesis that God is doing, that you belong to Jesus. He has saved you or he can save you. And he is the son of God, the one who sits enthroned upon all principality and power and all his power is at your disposal. I pray that that will be true for us in Jesus' name. And so you sort of start off Mark chapter 1 verse 1. And what you're expecting as we read through the book of Mark is that you're reading that section is that, oh, it will tell us more about Jesus. But there's a strange transition in chapter 2. And we're introduced, not to Jesus, but we're introduced to somebody called John the Baptist, John the Baptizer in verse 3. And you say, oh, I thought it was about Jesus, the Son of God. So why are we talking about John the Baptist? But you see, actually, if Jesus is king, like we've just established, if Jesus is the ruler, the Son of God, what happens is that before king can visit anybody or visit any place, they need somebody who is a foreigner or who prepares the way for them. So think about coming to America, right? Virtually every scene where, what was his name? King Jaffa, right? Visits and, and um, visits either his son or visits whomever. There is somebody who has already gone ahead to prepare the way. He may have laid flowers on the floor. He may have just to ensure that everything is going on well. And it's that same idea that Mark is presenting to us here that God wants to come. God wants to visit. If you are ever in doubt about that, let that be cleared from your mind this morning that God, the most deepest, if anything like that exists, the most deepest thing on the heart of God for his people is for him to come and have an encounter with his people. But for that to happen, there has to be a foreigner. His way has to be prepared. And guess what? This story is not just about John the Baptist. It is about us. When Jesus was ascending to heaven in, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 19 and 20, we are, he tells us, go. But the reason why he tells us, go, is so that he can have an impact on the people that exist in the world around us. And so, because we are joined to Jesus, we belong to the company of forerunners. And if the deepest thing on God's heart is for him to encounter his people, then we have to learn what it means to prepare the way for the Son of God. So I've titled this sermon, Preparing the Way for the Son of God. And we see a number of things very briefly. This morning, I won't preach too long, hopefully. 
But we spend some time, because if what I've just said is true, that the deepest thing on God's heart is to encounter his people, then we have to spend some time in praying and in worshiping, asking him to empower us. Amen. So the first thing we see here is the message of the foreigner. What is, what is the message of the foreigner? You see that in verse 2 and 3. He said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And he says, a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, if you are familiar with the Bible, or if you're a Jewish li um, listener who is reading Mark, you, you know that there's something wrong here. Because actually, what is happening here is that Mark is saying Isaiah has said something, but actually Isaiah hasn't really said what Mark has said Isaiah is saying. Does that make sense? Mark has combined different passages to make his point. And so, can we just put up that, that image very briefly? In verses, um, move this way. Mark has combined Exodus 20, Malachi 3, and Isaiah 40. And it's in verse, in, in verse 2, what we actually see is, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That is from Exodus 20, Malachi 3, verse 1. The part Isaiah actually says is this last part. So why is Mark saying Isaiah has said what Isaiah hasn't said, even though Isaiah may have said some of what Isaiah has said? The reason why is that Mark is drawing our attention, the attention of his listeners to the fact that actually, not just Isaiah, but all, all of the Old Testament testifies to Jesus the Christ. What he's doing, Exodus, is from the part of the Old Testament or the part of the Hebrew Bible called the law. And Malachi and um, Isaiah from the part of the Hebrew Bible called the prophets and Old Testament people, Jewish believers, when they were talking about the word of God, they often described it as the law and the prophets. And so basically Mark is saying that Jesus actually has been testified all through the scriptures. That when Jesus appears on stage, he's not appearing out of time, he's appearing in time because God has foreseen and designed all of these things to be. Can I just give you an encouragement this morning? That we don't have a God who is just merely responding to events. Who is just trying to catch up. Oh my God, where 3.0 is coming up. What am I going to do with all these crazy things these people have designed? No, everything has been designed by God beforehand. And we're just walking in his story. History is his story. We just get to feature and be part of it. And so when Mark says that Jesus has burst on the stage, he's saying basically, hey, Jesus has burst on the stage because God has designed it to be so. What, but what is John the Baptist's message? It's a message of preparation. He says, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way. For the Lord. And this is striking and important because how John the Baptist chooses to flesh that message out is in verse 5. He says he calls his preaching a message of repentance. Let me put it another way. In verse 3, he says, Prepare the way for the Lord. Why? We should make his pastorate. 
In other words, we need to prepare the way for the Lord because his paths haven't been straight. So when John is preaching that message to the people around him, the only way that they can respond is to respond in repentance and say, Lord, that is true about me. That is true of my life. You see, what John is basically saying is that sin is crookedness. Sin is working out of alignment. That when we don't fit into God's design and plan and purpose for our lives, the paths aren't being straight. And many of us are familiar with this sort of imagery. Think about the east-west road, right, that we, we heard collapse last year during the floods. I did my law school in um, Bielsa. So I often had to make... I wasn't dating my wife at the time, so I, didn't, I wasn't doing any love escapades. But I had family in Worry, so I had to make a particular journey from Yenogoa to Worry. And I heard about the East-West Road. I was scared for my life. It was so narrow. It was so crooked. It was so out of shape. Like, like this is the East-West Road that is meant to take people to where, to, to take people to where they're headed to. And basically, that's what John is saying here. That sin is crookedness. Sin is like Pinocchio's nose growing longer and longer, out of shape, out of design, out of what it's actually meant to be. And don't we, do, don't we know that in our own lives? That when we look at our own lives, we know very well that the road isn't always smooth. The Lord cannot come through because the paths are crooked. The Lord cannot come through because the path is out of alignment. And friends, just watch some of what this means is that it is incompatible to be a believer, to be a Christian, and to try at the very same time to have one leg in Christ and one leg outside in the world or in things that displease God. When we sort of conduct our lives in that way, our path is out of alignment. In fact, what Jesus says to a church that is trying to do that kind of 50-50 thing in Revelation 3 verse 15 is he says that I wish that you are actually hot or cold. Make up your mind. Choose one. But this thing doesn't gel. It doesn't work out. It is incompatible. And maybe some of us are the kind of people who we love to sing about Jesus. We love to declare the praises of Jesus. You get to your office in the morning. Everybody knows the first thing you do is you close your Bible. And you, you, close, you close your eyes. You sit down and you pray. You even sing worship songs loud. Everybody in the office can hear. But the people that actually mismanage money. And the people that actually obtain people, you are actually part of them. It's incompatible. The way of the Lord is not straight. And you see, what happens, friends, is that some of us, we have sinned. What happens is, if we sin long enough, the road actually breaks down and the Lord cannot even come at all. And maybe some of us are in the other category where it's sort of like the... the the road hasn't broken down, but it is it's getting there. You know that kind of thing where, like, happens with many of our roads in Nigeria. The reason why many of us decide to take air travel, or the reason why many of us, like me, prepare your mind, like, one week in advance before you travel, is that the road isn't always good. 
And so there's some parts where it's smooth and then there's some parts where it's rough and then you have to pass, bypass and then you get back to the smooth road again and then you have to dodge trailers and all of those things. Why? Because the path is crooked. And what happens is that some of us, the difficulty of having the kind of intimacy and the kind of fellowship with God that we ought to be having is because the path hasn't broken down. God still visits us. God still comes. You come to church and your heart is open and enlarged because of that smoothness of that road. But then from Monday to Friday, the road is so crooked and so out of alignment that it's difficult for what has happened on Sunday to affect you on Monday. John the Baptist says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Make his paths straight. But you see, what this also means is that as people of God, our message to the world is not a message of improvement. It's not a message of, of just an addition. It's a message of alteration. God is not coming just to add one more beautiful flower along the path of your crooked life. God is coming to actually radically alter that crooked life and make it a smooth road for him to walk through. Our sisters and maybe some of the guys who pay attention to their dressing know this. When you have um, bought a very fine dress or your tailor has made a fine dress and then you suddenly see that lace that you like, just, ah, this thing can, they can add it to this, to this clothes to make it finer. They can, they can make it better. Or maybe it's too long. You sort of try to improve it and so you make it shorter. Some of us think that's what Jesus has come to do in our lives. No, that's not what Jesus has come to do in our lives. What Jesus has come to do in our lives is when you take your clothes to a tailor and you say, man, <laughs> just, just change this entire thing. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's happening here. Jesus has not come to merely add. He hasn't come to merely improve. He has come to alter. Make the paths straight. But if you're not a Christian here, that picture of the east-west road is describing where your life is headed. I say that not because I condemn you or because we hate you. It's because actually what God does is that he actually sends the alarm of his judgment before calamity falls. And he's saying your path is crooked. Your path is out of alignment. If you don't submit your life to the lordship of Jesus, you may enjoy a thousand years here on earth, which is impossible. But actually, all of eternity is in separation from him. And you'll be living out the implications of that crookedness. This is the message of the foreigner. We don't get to pick and choose what parts of the gospel that we like. We don't get to pick and choose what parts of the gospel that we actually love. We, we submit in his entirety and say, Lord, we, we want to be the kind of people through which you can come, through whom you can come. Lord, help us. Adjust our lives. Make the path straight. Alter the crookedness. Smoothing, Lord, the places that are uneven. And help us to be the kind of individuals and company that wherever we find ourselves, Lord, that this message translates into all that we do. But if that's the message of the foreigner, what does the foreigner look like? And we have in this pericope, this this portion of Mark, a very 
two very strange details. We are told in verse 6 that John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And the question is, um, sorry, yeah, I get, we're talking about Jesus, but you decided to feature this John guy. So what does this have to do with anything we are going through in our lives? What does this have to do with the person of Jesus? Actually, what Mark wants us to see is that the kind of people who are foreigners for God are people who are unusual to the world around them. And can I just say, if there are any teenagers in the room or anybody who is sort of struggling with low, um, 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 low inferiority, you're struggling with how people perceive you, you will not fit in. If you belong to Jesus, you cannot fit in. What matters more is not what people think about you, it's what God thinks about you. And so if you're a teenager, a young person here, you're always struggling with what people perceive you to be. God loves you. God cares about you. And that is all that matters. Maybe it won't get you rep on Monday morning. But guess what? It gets you rep for all of eternity. But even for those of us that are not young or we don't struggle with identity issues, we don't struggle with inferiority complex, guess what? We will not fit in. Our values are the things that we do have to be so out of step with the world around us that the only way we can explain it is that we belong to Jesus. We are part of the foreigners. We are making the way for Christ. And if I can just push it further, maybe some of us, particularly the way it has to do is with our clothing. I'm not asking you to wear camel's hair. But I'm saying that part of what it means to belong to Christ or to be part of this um, foreigner group is that actually affects, radically alters everything that we do, everything about us. Everybody is trying to advance their career, so they have decided that, no, there is... They, they get married, but no, we're not going to have kids. But part of what it means is, okay, no, no. My, my value, my priority is no longer um, in just my career advancement. What does it mean for us to be part of the way God wants to make the world fruitful and to flourish? Everybody thinks that, oh, all that matters is just your, the way we sort of acquire money. And so we go to great lengths to achieve that, even if it means being out of relationship, even if it means not coming to church or belonging to the, the body of Christ. And for you, it's like, no, that can't be my priority. That can't be my value. Unusual to the world around them. But verse 7 says another additional detail. It says, that John was saying, actually, after me comes this one who is more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And what Mark wants us to see about the ministry of John and what should characterize our lives as believers is that there has to be a radical posture of humility where we are never in competition with Jesus, where we are never trying to be people who are trying Jesus, but where at every opportunity that we have, we are shining the spotlight on Jesus. 
Oh, I know we live in a religious culture where people have sung the most terrible songs and when they are giving them award, they say, oh, I want to give thanks to Jesus. That's not the kind of thing Mark is talking about here. What Mark is saying is that our lives have to be characterized by deep, heartfelt humility. John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to, to, to stoop down and untie his sandals. And actually, what theologians have said is that in that period of Jewish history, even for Jewish slaves, this was thought of as something that was beneath them. That if you had a slave that was Jewish, you couldn't ask them to stoop down and untie your sandals. And yet Mark is saying that John is saying, that, no, no, I'm not even worthy to do that. And can I just say that for those of us who are in vocational ministry or we get the privilege to stand up on a platform or to declare or sing about Jesus, it means that we never actually do it in such a way that people think that we are great and unique and wonderful. That every opportunity we get is to shine the light on Jesus. But no, some of us may never be called into vocational ministry. We may never be the kind of people who stand up on a platform. Maybe God has called you to your office. Maybe God has called you to your career and to, and to do all of that. But guess what? Even in that space, your career, your job exists as a platform through which the glory and beauty of Jesus is displayed. That when you step into your office on Monday all through Fridays, there's something different about Mr. Yinka. There's something different about this person that he, he, he doesn't even preach all the time. He doesn't even tell us, but there's something different about his values. The reason why is not just because we love John the Baptist. It's because we belong to Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 6, we're told that Jesus is one who was very much God. And yet he humbled himself. He took on the posture of a servant so that by doing so, he may reconcile all of us to God. Let me tell you, friends, the way we advance in the kingdom of God is by going low. We don't go high by going high. We go high by going low. Does it make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. But that is what it means to belong to the company of the forerunner. We want to make the way for the Lord. So we've seen the message of the foreigner. We've seen the, the, the posture or the identity, the nature of the foreigner. But what is the hope of the foreigner? How can the foreigner be assured that his message will succeed? Because after all, it's a message that is so out of step with the culture. So in fact, locationally, it was so out of step with where people were in their lives. You see that John was in the wilderness. People, people, he wasn't around people. People didn't want to have much to do with him. So how can we know that if this is the path that Christ has called us to walk on, that the message will be successful? Guess what? The answer is in verse 7. He says that there is one coming who is more, more powerful than I. Friends, the hope that we have that the gospel will succeed, that God will make of our lives what he has designed to make of our lives is that he is more powerful than we are. It is not because we are a great church. It is not because you are a great individual. It's not because you know a lot of theology. It's not because you pray well. It is because he is more powerful than we are. 
It is not because we know all the rest of our theologies in order. We know all the, all the canons from, from, from different church ages. No, it is because he is more powerful than we are. He is more powerful than we are. He is more powerful than we are. He is the one who breaks chains and breaks bonds so that we can become the kind of people through whom, even though we are, we are weak and we are broken and, we, are, and, we, are, and we, we don't have anything in and of ourselves, he can walk through. He is more powerful than we are. So how does he dispense his power? In verse 8, he says that I baptize with water, but he does what? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I need another touch of the Holy Spirit this morning. Lagos is hard. Life is hard. I don't know where you live. Maybe wherever. And you are not in touch with what the rest of us are dealing with, but for those of us who know what the rest of us are dealing with, life is hard. We're tempted to compromise every once in a while. Tempted to live out of sync with the values of the kingdom of God. Tempted to do our own things. But guess what? Because he can give us his Holy Spirit, because he will not withhold his Holy Spirit, we can be sure that he will empower us to go on his mission as foreigners. But if you are in this church or you're a Christian, you may have heard so much about the Holy Spirit that we actually don't know who the Holy Spirit is. Again, it's that whole thing Mark is trying to, to help us to see that we can be so familiar with who the Holy Spirit is that we don't actually know who he is or what he's capable of. I remember the affinity group um, that we had last year. One of them, it was the, the tech affinity group. And yeah, I heard that we have, you know, a lot of tech people in this church, people who have nice solutions and all of those things. But I didn't actually, even though I knew them, I didn't know what they were capable of. And so until that affinity group came up and they were talking about, oh, let's design this thing for this church. Let's do this kind of thing. Oh, this is what I do. This is what I'm capable of. And I was suddenly like, ah, I can tap into power here. That because I didn't know what these people were capable of, I wasn't able to tap into the power that they could provide. And it's in the same way with us that because we are so familiar with the Holy Spirit or because we don't know him as deeply as we should, we cannot tap into the power that he's able to provide. Maybe some of us, the Holy Spirit is just for helping us to pray quietly in the mornings and, and not to sort of lie. But guess what? If you don't know who the Holy Spirit is and the vastness of his power, you cannot tap into all that the power that he has. The good news is that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what, what, what is the baptism of the Spirit? Very briefly, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13, it says that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the means through which we come into the body of Christ. It says, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Baptism in the spirit refers to being dunked in to the body of Christ. Belonging is such a oneness of heart and union that God is for you. Christ is for you. The spirit has been poured out on you in such a way that that reality cannot be shaken by whatever you are going through in life or in the world or around you. But is the Spirit just 
for us to be in the body. Actually, the Spirit is, has been given to us so that we can be on the message of the foreigner. When the Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, we are told in verse 4 that the Spirit is poured out upon them and the Spirit, they are filled with the Spirit in such a way that they begin to speak with other tongues. And maybe some of us, this is all we know about what the Spirit does. The Spirit actually is just for speaking in tongues and we sort of just go on our own way. But actually, that's not all we see. In Acts chapter 4, John and Peter are before a very terrible, if you like, powerful group of people. And they, they didn't quite have the, the ability to be able to stand up to those people. But we are told that the Spirit fills Peter in verse 8 and he says to them, rulers and elders of the people. And in 19 and 20, he confronts them with the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guess what, friends? The Spirit enables us that even in our weakness, even in the things we are naturally unable to do, He empowers us. Sort that when we get to Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is writing and he's talking to the church, he doesn't just say, oh, the Spirit was for then, the Spirit was for that one time that you were given. No, he says continually that we are to be in an atmosphere, in a state, in a posture where we are filled with the Spirit. Oh, and you may be here and you're like, I, I, I'm, I'm just an app designer. I, I, I don't, like, what's this Spirit business? Like, I, I'm just an accountant. What's this spirit business? I, okay, yeah, I get when I'm singing on Sunday, but how does this even translate into all of my life? What does this mean that I'm filled with the spirit? Actually, the spirit exists not just for those religious things that we do. The spirit exists for the everyday mundane aspects of our lives. Why? Because if we're truly going to be the foreigners of God, we're not going to be the kind of people that just stay in church on Sunday mornings. We have to be the kind of people who go out into all the world empowered by the spirit of God. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9, Joshua, a guy who is just a civil servant, he's basically the president of a nation, and he's like, how am I going to lead these people? How am I going to do all these things? Moses prays for him, and he says, Joshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom. If in, in Isaiah chapter 11, we know that the spirit of wisdom is the spirit of the Lord, and so he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, but, okay, but I'm not the president. I just work in an office. I, I, I just do things casually. I'm just meant to design apps. Guess what? The Spirit came upon somebody who was a carpenter. In Exodus chapter 35, verse 30 to 35, the Spirit comes upon Oholiab and Bezalel and to design something that was basically carpentry and woodwork. And, and God says to Moses, he said, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel. God has called you by name Olumide. God has called you by name Moses. God has called you by name Dami. God has called you by name and he has filled you with the Spirit of God, with skill, intelligence, and knowledge, and all craftsmanship. Guess what? The reason why, part of the reasons why you may not be accomplishing your targets and goals for the year is because you're not filled with the Spirit. Oh, but Emmanuel, I, 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 I'm, I'm just a parent. I'm just a pregnant mom. I, I don't know about all this Holy Spirit business. Guess what? In Luke chapter 1, verse 41 and 42, there was a pregnant woman in that passage. And what happens to her basically is that the Holy Spirit comes on her while she's mothering and being pregnant for a child. And the Holy Spirit comes upon her and she's able to lead and say things in a certain way. Guess what, friends? We cannot be parents. We cannot be effective husbands and wives without the Spirit of God. 
I know this personally, not just because I read it. I was six years old once. Like my son is five now. And what happens in that age is that you have this one item of clothing that you want to wear all the freaking time. Everywhere. I had this trouser that I always wanted to wear everywhere that I was going. And so we had a Wednesday service one day and my mom had said, okay, what are you going to wear to church? And I said, no, is this one trouser I'm going to wear? And she says, no. And I say, mommy, please. She says, no. And I say, mommy, please. And then she, she tells me, okay, this other one I'm telling you to wear, go and bring it. She's sitting in her room. We're living in a two-story building, the ground floor, and the rooms were upstairs. So I go down and bring that one she asked me to bring. But I'm on the stairs. As a six-year-old, I know that if this cloth is dirty, she will not allow me to wear it. So I scrub the, the staircase with that trouser and make sure that it was very dirty so that she would tell me to wear the other one that I wanted to wear. And so I go to meet her in the room and I tell her, Mommy, I can't wear this one because it's dirty. And she looks at me and said, I saw you scrub it on the stairs. People of God, she was in her bedroom. She was in her bedroom. How did she know? She was filled with the Spirit. Guess what? There are things that you cannot tell your children now because you are not filled with the Spirit. There are ways you cannot parent your children now because you are not filled with the Spirit. I can tell you stories after stories in my own life, in other people's lives, that the Spirit is not just for Sunday mornings. The Spirit is for all of life. We need the Spirit, friends. If we are going to be effective foreigners for Jesus Christ, if we are going to prepare the way for the Lord and, be, and make sure that he comes into our homes and comes into our jobs and comes into our families and comes in every space where we find ourselves, we need to be filled with the Spirit. And don't worry, you, you don't have to shout like me, but you need the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit, friends. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.